Hey, it's Lisa. This episode of the REIT Search Podcast is sponsored by my Credible Health Bug Shop. If you're a nutritionist, dietitian, fit pro, or health coach, the shop contains a ton of done-for-you content to save you time and fill your digital marketing calendar. Every piece of content in the shop is pre-written, well-researched, expertly edited, and limited edition. As a health pro, you could choose from either long form or mini articles in your field of interest and use them to stay in touch with your audience without having to do the research and content creation yourself. Simply customize and paste them into your blog, email software, or social media platform and hit publish. To check out the Credible Health Blog Shop, visit my website at lisacleach.com. That's L-E-E-S-A-K-L-I-C-H. Research is a podcast that explores current nutritional research and health studies. Our lawyer says we have to let you know that this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informative purposes only. If you have any health questions, see your doctor or licensed health professional. I think this is a good topic too. I'm glad you picked this one. Although, I mean, it's, I say that about everyone. I'm like, this topic is so cool. (laughs) We're still so new to this. So they're all. I know. I know. I love that the novelty isn't wearing off. (laughs) Before we get started, can I talk about some business? Yes. Yeah, I heard back from Strokes. I oh my gosh! <laughs> I emailed them. Amazing. And Strokes original dill pickles are fermented, like we Yay. talked about. Remember, we can see the the cloudiness in the brine, um, and they are not pasteurized. So, as far as I can tell, based on that, um, they are raw, live, cultured pickles and they Amazing. are delicious and i am they not are. getting money for this this is just a long time strubs dill pickle lover and, and as am i and the fact that it's refrigerated as well which also shows that it's not pasteurized so yeah that's good maybe one day the podcast will get big enough that we would get the sponsors such that as would be that. nice but yeah i just but thought i'd share i did super cool and they did reply which i was quite impressed with and they're canadian they're a canadian product so if you're anywhere else and you can't get them Haha, ha, we have better pickles. <laughs> but uh, yeah, go try Strub's Dill Pickles. They are really, really yummy. And they have tons of garlic in them, which is also like fermented garlic uh, is actually really good for you as well. We could do a whole other podcast on garlic. Uh, but for yes. right now, it's definitely something you can get to help support your immune system, which is good. That is so cool. I'm so, it's, that's cool they got back to you. So. I know. I was quite happy when I saw that. Yay! So what are we talking about today, Lisa? So today we are going to talk about food cravings. Like, oh my gosh, I need to eat this specific thing right now. So the study that I have pulled up is called Extended Calorie Restriction Suppresses Overall and Specific Food Cravings, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, which you can read because I've linked to it in the show notes so you oh, can fantastic. enjoy and is that. this a free article online it is it oh is. even better i love I when they do that not paywalled so it is accessible by everyone basically in a nutshell this study wants to know whether dieting whether being on a calorie restricted diet can affect your food cravings because there's two schools of thought on 
food cravings, which we'll get into in just a few minutes. Okay. Um, but I like this study because, again, it's a systematic review meta-analysis. So it's a review of several studies. So the evidence is pretty strong. Yeah. So if we get into a teeny bit of the history first, this study was done in 2017. And of course, the data on whether food cravings increase or decrease during dieting is all over the map. Yeah. People who are dieting, they're restricting calories. Some people have more cravings for these foods. Some people have fewer cravings for these foods. What does the overall big picture look like? Mm -hmm. This was a meta-analysis of eight studies. And because it was a meta-analysis of several studies, we're ranking it as a seven out of seven on our scale, which again is going to be linked in the notes. So it has got pretty strong findings. Yeah. I just want to reiterate, meta-analysis is the top of the pyramid. It is the, the right. best of the best because they are able to pull the data from published papers and combine it all together into big study to do their fancy statistical analysis. And so we just have so many more data points, which is why it holds so much more significance. Exactly. Exactly. I'll jump to the conclusion before okay. we dive into how they did it and what this all means. Basically, in a nutshell, what they found when they looked at multiple different studies is that by reducing calories or restricting calories is associated with reduced cravings. Oh. I know. Reduced cravings. Again, the data is all over the map. So they took a bunch of it and looked at it all in one lens. And they found that when people are eating less, they actually eventually crave less. And we'll go into how this all came to be. Okay. I'm already starting to get questions in my head, so I can't wait. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want me to keep going or yeah. do you want to ask? No, keep going. I, I want to wait till there's a better time. Okay, cool. So what they did was these were people with obesity. Okay. And just as a little aside, as a health writer, we don't refer to people with obesity as being obese people okay. anymore. So people are not their diseases. Yes. The new way of talking about people is they are not their diseases, they have diseases. Yes. So I'm very glad that this study was speaking about people with obesity and not obese people. Well, because so, language is really important. How yes. we describe and how we use words and what words we're using have a big impact. So that's good. I'm glad right. to hear that they were doing that. Right, exactly. So the researchers looked at studies of people with obesity mm -hmm. who were on calorie-restricted diets for 12 weeks or longer. And they self-measured their food cravings before and after their diets. So there's a standard measure called the food craving inventory okay. where people are asked a bunch of questions and they rate the answers from one to five on how strongly they feel these things and act on their cravings. So this was actually an experiment. This mm -hmm. is not an observational study. This is an experimental study. So they were looking, obviously, the people who are looking at all of these studies had to find the studies that actually used this metric and the criteria. Now, cravings. What do we crave? Well, of course, we crave overall food. Like yes. we crave food Just in calories. general. Calories and nutrients. Exactly. So we crave food. But there's also a very specific cravings for things like and. I'm sure you can agree. Sweets, yeah. high fat, yeah. high starch, oh, yeah. fast food. So these are all the standard cravings that most people experience at some time throughout their lives. Yeah. So a food craving, like the cravingness of the craving is not just <laughs> the desire for food. It's not That's, just I'm hungry. Yeah. It's defined as a frequent, intense, and irresistible desire. 
to consume oh. a particular type of food. Okay. So it is very specific yeah. because it is on a specific type of food and it is intense. Yes. It's not like, well, oh, I think kind we can of all hungry. attest to that. Right. Exactly. So it's good to have definitions when you're doing a study because then everybody's on the same page. I agree. And then in general, the research shows that people who have overweight and people who have obesity and people who have a higher body mass index, mm -hmm. which again, BMI is used in this case, just as a measure, not as a judgment, they tend to have higher levels of cravings yes. for foods, in particular, energy dense, higher fat foods. This is a physiological, the body's reaction and the cravings tend to be stronger. And they sometimes also crave sweet foods, starchy food, fast food. We all crave all of them. Yes. But the studies do show that there is increased craving with yeah. increasing weight, which is very interesting when clinicians as health professionals, as nutrition pros are trying to help people, right? Yeah. Like to really understand where people are coming from physiologically and psychologically and everywhere. So if we think about cravings, and this is where the study was really interesting because there's kind of two schools of thoughts on the different reasons why we have cravings. Yeah. One is called the deficiency theory. Yes. And this one is very common and popular on the internet where if people need a nutrient, they're deficient in something that their body will naturally have them gravitate to the foods that have that nutrient, that it's some kind of innate craving to meet a deficiency or an actual physiological need. Yeah. Right. You've heard of this. This is very common. Oh yeah. And you see different images and graphics all over all social media, including Pinterest and stuff like that. I think the one that comes to mind most is if you're craving sweets you're low in magnesium oh yes i've like seen that. that the chocolate magnesium connection. yeah right yeah so that's just the one that comes to mind thinking about it right that. yep i've seen those and that is part of the body of research that shows that there's a link with deficiency and that's only one theory because remember before the study was done the data is all over the place i mean it's mm. still all over the place but this data kind of tries to put all together the other theory is called the conditioning theory Okay. And by conditioning theory, it's more of that food cravings occur because there's certain psychological connections yeah. that we make between certain foods at certain times. So for example, maybe we go to watch a movie, we crave popcorn. Yeah. So I think it's that's a very good example. <laughs> exactly. Right. I love me my popcorn, to uh -huh. be honest. Right. Good. So there's two different ways. How much of food cravings are physical deficiency need versus yeah. how much of cravings are psychological. What about even comfort foods? Like, oh my gosh, yeah. I feel bad. I'm going to make myself a soup that I used to make me feel better as a kid. Kind of. Oh thing, yeah, right? there's definitely a connection there. And it's funny, right. like there, there is something to that theory because when you look at comfort foods, which is typically what we need when we're not feeling our best and we, need, yeah. we feel we need some type of emotional support. But you look culture to culture, comfort foods change. Right. Culture to culture, which tells you there's that psychological connection to something yep. that happened previously to us. And that's where that connection is coming from. Exactly. Yeah. So we have two very relatable. We've all probably experienced both of them. Yeah. Different ideas on where these come from. And really the bottom line here is it's probably a combination of both on some levels and there may be more factors involved. The human body is infinitely complex. So this is not about who's right and who's wrong. It's how much really weight did they both have with each other. And that's what this study was trying to look at. 
Yeah. And normally when we have different theories, it, it seems like it's a combination. Right. You know, it really depends on so many different factors. So it's not that one is right and one is definitely wrong. It's, you know, how do they interplay together? And it really comes down to that mental state and all of these different like hormonal factors, memory, neurotransmitter, everything kind of coming together and, and creating this response. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's kind of what this study is going to be showing, but it's multifactorial, (laughs) right? Yeah. And and that's the whole point. That's why we look at, we look at things from the big picture. We're looking at several studies together. So now there's evidence for both. Of course, we've all probably experienced both on some level um, for different cravings. So what they did was, and I wanted to just spend a couple minutes on how they chose their studies, because this is really important when you're looking at a a Mm meta-analysis, is not just the fact they had eight studies, but how did they pick which eight studies they were going to look at? And this is always super important to look for when you're looking in research. So what they did was, and of course, they wrote it all up in their methods section so it can be recreated mm-hmm. by anybody who wants to do this exact same thing and double check their responses, which is part of the scientific process is you put stuff out there and how you did it. And you know what? Other people can double check it and see well, if they get the same results. That's a really important point. I, I'm glad that you brought that up because that is a huge part of the scientific process. It has to be repeatable by somebody other than the person running the initial experiment. And if it's not, that's a huge red flag. So they, yeah, they have to share how they got their data, how they set up the experiment or even just the data gathering. If it is a meta-analysis, they didn't necessarily run the experiment, but how did they find it? And then how did they analyze it? Exactly. Exactly. So I'll I'll spend a couple minutes just on how they did that, because this is so important when you're looking at a Mm meta-analysis. Now, the number one thing to highlight, of course, is that they have what's called predefined exclusion criteria. Okay. That means before they ever did any search in PubMed and you know, Scopus and all of these other places they like, before they ever searched anything, they came up with criteria that's going to exclude studies that they're going to find. Because they know they're going to find a whole smorgasbord. Oh, so yeah. how do they know which ones to put in a meta-analysis? And of course, you need studies that are going to be somewhat similar in their methodology. So you actually make sense to pool the data yeah. together in the first place. Okay. So we'll go through a couple, not all of them. Of course, they're looking for studies that are in English. Yeah. They're excluding studies that are textbooks and book chapters, review chapters. So things that were not an actual study itself. They're excluding all of those. Primary research articles. Primary research. Yes. Gotcha. On people. So that was another criteria. These are, they're looking at food cravings in people. They also excluded anything that was not an interventional study. So what this means is they are excluding observational studies. They're looking for studies where people literally changed their diet. They went on a calorie-restricted diet for at least 12 weeks, and their food cravings were measured with a standard questionnaire before they started their diet and afterward. Yeah. So they also excluded, for example, people who are diagnosed with eating disorders. Yeah. And we can guess why the first thing that came to my head is that people who experience eating disorders may have a different level of cravings that they experience differently from other people. So they, in fact, might need their own study. Well, I think, Um, too, because that is more of a mental health issue 
around eating disorders. Right. A lot of other psychological influences going right. on. It's kind of where I went with that. Right. Yeah. So they weren't part of this particular study, but I do strongly believe that there should be, and there probably oh, sure. are studies just for that particular group. Yeah. So they also looked for any study that was more than 12 weeks long because they want to really get the sense as to whether calorie restriction changes their food cravings and not just a day or two of restricting, but long-term minimum three months, 12 weeks long-term. So they did some super fancy statistical analyses using the R software. Okay. And what they measured was these questionnaires from before and after on these different types of cravings that we mentioned for overall food and then sweet food, high fat, fast food, and even fruits and vegetables, which is hilarious. And I'll tell you that in a second. Okay. Okay. So here's the overall results. Cravings reduced. So out of a score of five, overall food, cravings for overall food were 0.25 points. So a quarter of a point less after the 12 plus weeks of calorie restriction versus before. Yeah. Out of a point of five. Wheats had the highest decrease. That's a lot. So it had, the cravings went down the most for sweets and that was 0.41 points. So not quite half of a point out of the full five point scale. Okay. So here's where it starts making sense because if you were on a calorie restricted diet, there's a lot of high fat food and there's a lot of high sugar food. Those are all the calorie dense food. As soon as you start taking those away, you start balancing blood sugar. And so your body isn't in this seesaw now with this fight between high blood sugar, low blood sugar, high insulin, low insulin, all of these different things. So it makes sense that you're craving, you're not getting that positive feedback loop anymore. And so your craving for sugar will be reduced. That could very well be part of it as well, because the whole structure of this study was when people are literally restricting their nutrients, they're restricting their energy intake, they're lowering their calories, and they've spent 12 weeks conditioning themselves to get used to eating fewer calories. What does this do with the cravings? And again, this goes to how much is physical need the deficiency model versus how much is the psychological conditioning model. So there's so many interconnections that could be played out here. Exactly. So we have a reduction in overall food of 0.25 points, a reduction in sweet food, 0.41 points. And that sweet food reduced, sweet food cravings reduced the most. Yeah. And then as you mentioned, high fat food. So high fat food reduced by 0.19. Okay. And fast food by 0.29. Oh, that's fantastic. So what this overall showed for these top cravings was on a scale of one to five after 12 weeks of calorie restriction in people who have obesity sweet food cravings reduced the most at not quite half of one out of five Mm -hmm. and the rest of them reduced in and around a quarter of a point out of five but this now the fruits and vegetables yeah well sorry sorry, just i don't mean to interrupt this is really interesting because this it makes sense. I mean, the less you eat it, the less you're going to crave it because your body becomes reconditioned both physically and psychologically. So it really is a positive feedback loop. The more junk food you eat, the more you crave it. The less junk food you eat over time, the less your body craves it. So it's just a matter of getting over that hump of craving it and just willpower fighting through, which is hard. I'm not going to deny that that's hard. I mean, advertisers work damn hard to make sure that you don't forget about them. Oh yeah. Uh, but you can do it if you can get past that hump and just give yourself a goal of a month 
it's going to be easier on the other side and that those cravings are really going to diminish over time. That's so cool. Right. So these cravings diminished by a small amount after 12 weeks and it puts a bit more weight on the conditioning theory versus the deficiency theory that you can train your body and eventually the cravings will start to peter out versus you're lacking food and your cravings go up. Now, of course, people are going to experience all different kinds of things and there are going to be people who their cravings increase and not. But what this study looked at was multiple different studies and multiple different people that overall, on average, cravings decreased slightly on the other side of 12 weeks, which is positive because, as you said, dieting is hard. Yeah, it's really hard. Okay, so fruits and vegetables, my fruits favorite Fruits and vegetables topic. made me laugh <laughs> because we don't talk about fruits and vegetables cravings and that's kind of why. So fruits and vegetables are part of the cravings questionnaire and they asked, and I have to read a quote from how the researchers described this. They wrote, cravings for fruits and vegetables did not significantly differ from zero in the meta-analysis conducted. So hashtag poor fruits and vegetables, (laughs) pretty much zero. People don't generally crave them. And this is just a reality that we all kind of knew. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, well, okay. With a scientific experiment of one on myself, I know if I go for too long without eating enough more vegetables, I definitely start to crave them. But I mean, again, I'm just a study of one. But if I've gone for too long, if thing lapses or everything, like life gets really busy, which happens with three kids and a lot of yes. other things going on, if I'm eating badly, then after a few days, I'm like, oh, I feel gross. I need my big salad. Right. Which I right. And the food like, craving is that like intense desire for this yeah. particular food, like right now. Yeah. I guess overall, maybe I'm an oddity. <laughs> I'm the odd one out. But the thing too is, this study was done on a particular population. I mean, we could do this study on a population yeah, and see how it is and see, I'm now curious, in how many people do cravings for fruits and vegetables do significantly differ from zero? Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I've been eating this way, just a healthier way for quite a while now. And so, I mean, this is going on for obviously more than three months. We're talking years and years. So not to say... You've been conditioning yourself. I have been conditioning myself. I mean, one of the things I had to do is just change my relationship with food. And that's definitely had a huge effect um, on what I eat. I don't know about you, but uh, yeah. Do you ever crave vegetables? Mm. (laughs) You're with the majority. (laughs) Um, I eat them. I like them. But when it comes to like, oh my God, I need to eat something right now. They're not top of my list. Yeah. But I don't think they're ever on the top of anybody's (laughs) list. But there's definitely days where it's like, oh my God, I'm really craving Brussels sprouts with my steak with dinner or something like that. So it's okay. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I I think we're establishing I'm a bit different. (laughs) Okay. That's, That's what's called an outlier. Yes, I am an outlier. In scientific research, an outlier, right. Yeah. Okay, so just to close up on where this stands is what this study established is that in general, people with obesity who've been on a 12-week calorie-restricted diet or longer do tend to have 
smaller cravings for the typically craved foods, Mm -hmm. sweet, high fat, starchy, and fast foods that are smaller after at least 12 weeks of being on a calorie restricted diet. So do our bodies crave things because we're deficient in them? Maybe, maybe to a certain extent. Yeah. The conditioning, the getting used to something, getting used to not eating those kinds of foods might actually have a bigger role to play in cravings rather than deficiencies. So just to play devil's advocate here, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I'm wondering if the deficiency play doesn't come in because if you're cutting back on bad foods, quote unquote bad foods, I don't really like that saying, but the um, comfort foods that we're talking about, you have to fill your stomach with something. And so the best way to fill your stomach without getting all the calories is by eating more vegetables and eating more of these quote unquote, again, clean foods that tend to be more nutrient dense. And so just by default, you are probably getting more of these micronutrients that your body needs. And so I'm wondering if these two different theories are kind of playing off each other where you're getting a decrease in cravings because you're not eating them anymore. So your taste buds change and what your body wants changes over time. But at the same time, now you're nourishing your body a little bit better because you're not filling up on junk food. And so we can look back to see what type of calorie restrictions that they had. Yeah. Because that's, it's possible that their calorie restrictions were to start every meal with a fruit or vegetable. I didn't go into that level of detail versus having a nutrition shake. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't go into that level of detail, but that is another good point is with nutrition. And part of what makes nutrition research difficult is that you generally replace food with another food. Yes. Because you still have to fill your stomach somehow to get that feeling of satiety. Otherwise, it's not going to last long. You're eventually going to hit the breaking point where you're just so hungry, you'll eat your own arm. And diets are so hard. Yeah. They're so so hard. You have to eat, but it's just what you eat. What What you you eat. What you eat is really what makes all the difference. Right. And how much. What and how much. Yeah. So a couple of last thoughts on the study was that this was not an observational study. This was a pooling of interventional studies, which makes it a pretty good study to look at when they did the meta-analysis. And that it was sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. Nice. So this is, again, a highly respected place through the United States government where it's not a commercial interest per se. I was going to say we're reducing potential bias there. Reducing so not to say that there commercial is, bias, yes. Yeah, there's Not to say there's no bias, but we're eliminating one of the potential sources of bias. Exactly. Yeah. And also the researchers were from different countries. So they were in the United States and Sri Lanka, which is always nice that there's collaborations between different researchers in different countries and different yep. institutions because it gives different perspectives on it. And with people working together internationally, the, you know, the results are interesting, I think mm-hmm. a little more than if it's like one person in one institution. So those were positive strengthening factors in my mind. So that in a nutshell is this study that is linked to below. So people with obesity who've gone on at least 12-week diet do have reduced cravings for pretty much all the standard cravings. And there may still be some nutrition deficiency in there, but this shows that the 
conditioning response is probably a little stronger in most people. And that is great to know if you are on a diet or if you are helping people through calorie-restricted diets, they're so difficult. And this may be a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. There, there is a light at the end of the tunnel because you know the craving isn't going to last. You know there's going to be an end and all you have to do is fight through. The other thing that I found that I've heard a lot of other people agree with, again, this is just my own personal experience in the field. I have a sweet tooth. I love sugar and it tends to be all or nothing. I am not one of those people that can just eat a little bit of a treat. And so I find for me, because I I don't want to be eating that stuff, for me, it's easier just to avoid it altogether. Because again, if I have a little bit, I have a lot. And so, you know, knowing that the craving will get easier, the longer I go without it is is a good thought to keep with it as I am trying to improve because I I mean this is a journey right you're always trying to modify your diet and improve and you have fallbacks and you have stressful moments and you have celebrations which tend to foil all your intentions but yeah like it's good knowing that that it will improve over time so this is a good study yes article good choice yay yay so you can leave us a review on the podcast, we would yeah. love to hear your thoughts on this episode and give us ideas for future topics I know. What for do the want research to learn podcast. More about? What yes. is everybody talking about out there? We want to know. Share. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks with another exciting episode. Yes. I can't wait. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you for listening. For exploration into more health research, don't forget to subscribe. And we'd like to thank Joseph McDade for the music. If you have any comments, ideas, or recipes to share, you can reach us at ReetSearch on Instagram and Twitter and ReetSearch Podcast on Facebook. That's spelled R-E-A-T Search. Hey, it's Lisa. This episode of the REIT Search podcast is sponsored by My Credible Health Blog Shop. If you're a nutritionist, dietitian, fit pro, or health coach, the shop contains a ton of done-for-you content to save you time and fill your digital marketing calendar. Every piece of content in the shop is pre-written, well-researched, expertly edited, and limited edition. As a health pro, you could choose from either long form or mini articles in your field of interest and use them to stay in touch with your audience without having to do the research and content creation yourself. Simply customize and paste them into your blog, email software, or social media platform and hit publish. To check out the Credible Health Blog Shop, visit my website at lisacleach.com. That's L E E S A K L I C H dot com.